Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com/switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm John Snow and this week's guest is David Hellwood. David is an actor, director, author and activist. He was born in Birmingham, trained at Rada and made a name for himself on the stage with big roles that included Othello and Martin Luther King. Most recently, he played the right-wing commentator William Buckley Jr in Best of Enemies, a fantastic production that is currently screening in cinemas thanks to National Theatre Live. His diverse screen work includes film, documentaries and the hit thriller Homeland, which saw David relocate to America for a decade. David often shines a light on issues and subjects that he cares about through his roles and documentary subjects. And he spoke about racism and a breakdown with great honesty and eloquence in his 2021 memoir Maybe I Don't Belong Here. It was such a treat to sit down with David. and get to know more about him. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Please note, if you're listening with kids, there is some strong language towards the end of the conversation. David Harewood, it's an honor to have you with us and I'm really thrilled that you've agreed to do this. I wouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> it's an honor to be in with a broadcasting legend, sir. Steady. You fell in love with the idea of acting while watching TV with your family.、Mm. Can you tell me about the Hayward family tradition? How did it work? Well, I mean, my father was a, a long-distance lorry driver, and、um, would sort of would sort of come home. You know, he would be most times he'd be home when we got home from school. Because I was always, always out playing football, but he'd be utterly exhausted. Exactly. So he would sort of plonk himself down on the sofa. You know, and it was in those days before remote control television, where you had to actually get up and turn it over. So he would sort of plonk himself down on the sofa in front of the television with a with a you know kind of red stripe on on, on his elbow, and and sort of watch, you know, fall asleep basically in front of the television, and we would have to watch everything that he didn't watch. But as soon as we sort of tried to turn the television over, 
he would sort of wake up and go, oh, I was watching that. And they used to love things like you know, On the Buses uh-huh. and all those British 70s sitcoms, yeah. Rising Damp. And I used to love all that. So mm-hmm. I was sort of, I was sort of enraptured with it already. And, and especially comedians like Leslie Crowther and people who could just hold an audience in the palm of their hand. Tommy Cooper was my favourite. Mm. He would literally just, uh, he didn't have to say anything. Just had to stand there. And have the hat. Uh, exactly. So that, that, that I, I, I fell in love with uh, performance, in, in, I think, in those days. Reflecting on those memories and the shows you watched, you were astonished that even you even thought about a career in acting. I did. I mean, there really weren't that many black people on the television in those mm-hmm. days. Um, or, or they were all mainly Americans. Trevor McDonald. Trevor Forever. McDonald came, uh, of course, Trevor uh, uh, came um, as I got into my early teens. Um, but before that, there was hardly anybody. Mm. Were, and so, you know, most of the, as I say, most of the Amer- uh, characters, that black characters that they were, were sort of in, um, in American TV shows. Mm. The chief was always, the chief of police was always the grumpy black guy. Um, whether it was Huggy Bear in Starsky Hutch or something like that, Starsky and Hutch, and um, it was it was it was the comedy. I, I just loved making people laugh, entertaining my classmates. Um, sort of, I was a bit mischievous and a bit naughty uh, at school. I didn't really get academia. I wasn't very academic at school. I, mean, I you know, sounds I, a bit like me. <laughs> I just didn't get it. I was like, why are we here? I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying being with my mates, but doing geography, I just didn't, n- none of that made sense to me. Um, so I was, I, I, you know, it was at the end of my school time. And I remember when we were all, everyone was getting set to leave and all my, my mates were heading off to university and I thought, well, I don't want to do more of this. Hmm. You know, but I didn't know what what else to do, and I was very fortunate that a teacher called me into the school and said, "You know, Howard, what are you going to do when you leave?" And and I I said, "I don't know, sir." And he said, "Well, we've been talking in the staff room, and we think you should be an actor." Brilliant! And that was a light bulb moment for me. Mm. That was like real eureka moment. And I thought, yes, of course, that's what I want to do, and was just enthused and full of energy, and started auditioning and. Uh, and literally within six months, ended up at RADA. But what about your family? Did they think acting was a, a viable no, career? <laughs> my mother and father were like, you can't do that. I mean, I guess like, there were no black actors. So it was Lenny Henry had just appeared on television. Um, so it was it was sort of, it didn't seem like a very viable um, prospect. It just seemed like a, a dead end uh, thing to do. But... Um, they, you know, they they saw that I was passionate about it, and then when I got into Rada, they were like, "Oh, so you, you must be pretty good at it." Hmm. Uh, and then there was the whole saga of getting. W- a were grant. there many others? Many many other black, uh, black aspirants. There were there were there were two black kids in 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 my year, um, one in the year above, and there were um, three or four in the year below. So, I I think the principal um, Oliver Neville, who was our principal at the time really wanted to change the demographic at, at mm. RADA at the time. And he just said, look, you know, I want to I want to stop the idea that it's all posh white people. And and he saw there was a lot more people from the, from um, uh, you know, the North and from mm. Scotland and from Ireland and Newcastle. There were people, working class kids. So th- there was a lot, my, my intake was very, very different. I was very fortunate. Your BBC documentary, Get On Up, mm. highlights the importance of representation. And one figure who looms large 
is Sidney Poitier. Mm. What impact did he have on you? He had a big impact, I must say, on oh, me, let alone you. Yeah, massive, massive, massive. I mean, just to see his dignity mm. and class and poise. You know, uh, you know, we again, we were kind of used to seeing the kind of gruff, brutish black characters on, on screen. Um, you know, the baddies are always the black guys. The gangsters are always the black guys. And particularly here in England, it was always the kind of crooks and villains. And and then to sort of see this this sharp-suited, mm. handsome, stylish black man, always wearing a suit and tie, and uh, was a revelation to, to, to us. And I, I always talk about the moment, and I, it's in that documentary where he slaps the racist white man back in the face. I mean, I remember seeing that in our household and there was like an audible gasp because we'd just never seen a black man stand up for himself like that. Mm. So it, he was revolutionary, not just in his kind of presence, but just in what he stood for. So for, for me, he was just a massive influence. You you got a grant to go to RADA mm. and, and a grant from Birmingham Council. You thrived here. So do you think that you'd have got where you are today without that opportunity? No, not at all. I mean, I couldn't have afforded it. I could never have afforded it. Um, and, that, and that was one of the, you know, scary things that my parents were concerned about. You know, suddenly I was going off to London and, you know, I was going to have to look after myself and find somewhere to live. And, you know, they were worried. Hmm. But I'd, I'd already won a place at, 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 at RADA, so it was now a case of, well, how am I going to pay for it? And back in those days, they had the council did give you grants. I mean, I don't know how students now take out loans, I guess, but um, I ended up having to audition uh, at, uh, for Birmingham Council with a spoon player <laughs> and and, um, and somebody who was singing who was singing opera or something like that. And I, I didn't get the grant, but I was very fortunate that I worked with somebody who was a bit of a bit of a gangster, and he knew. Um, he knew somebody um, and sort of introduced me to, 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 to a gentleman who worked for Birmingham Council. Uh, and I was like 15. I didn't know who this guy was, but he came over and asked me about RADA and asked me about myself and, you know, spoke a bit, I, I spoke a bit about my background. And then he said, well, look, you know, I'll, I'll have a word, he said, and we'll see what happens. And literally within three weeks, there was someone knocking on my door uh, asking my dad to sign this piece of paper. And, Amazing. And I got this grant from Birmingham Council. How fabulous. Yeah. I mean, you, all, all the currents of all the rivers were running in the same direction. I've been very fortunate. And I think that's part of, I mean, you know, luck is a huge part of this this mm. industry. And I've been, there have been several times and I have been very lucky to either know somebody or get a, a helping hand from somebody. So, you know, uh, it hasn't all been talent. But there was talent and you had flowered as a school boy. Uh, take me back to the speech you gave in your first school play mm. and how it made you feel. Well, I mean, it's been a refrain throughout my life. Martin Luther King's speech has been a refrain mm. uh, throughout my life. And as a as a young boy, I first saw the... I mean, I was born in 65 and he was, he was shot in 65. Um, so I guess, uh, you know, a couple of years... I mean, I was about five or six when I first heard that speech on the television, um, and I was stunned by that speech. It was, it must have, I remember it was in black and white, we had a black and white television, but it was playing on the screen, and I sort of heard this voice coming out of the tele television, and I was like, 
And I stood there rooted to the spot. And I said to my mum, who is that? And she said, told me it was Martin Luther King and explained to me, you know, the fight for civil rights. I was a bit too young to understand it. But I, it really made an impact on me. It was very, I, I could feel the passion or his passion. And then um, at school, I was asked to play him. Mm. Uh, how wonderful. I know. But, uh, Age how old? I must have been about 10 or 11. Um, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was a, it was my first. Crew. In an essentially white cast, presumably. It would, well, it was, it was a whole, the whole play was called Illusions. I remember that. when it was all about these little dream sequences. And I was, I was, you know, to play Martin Luther King and just, just do a, a little bit of the I Have a Dream speech. Mm. And I, I, knew, I knew I remembered the speech and I thought, you know, this is a really passionate speech. And so I really went for it. I was this 10 year old kid, but I did the whole accent and I was talking like the. And the audience were, because the, the first night there were a lot of black parents in the audience, because it was a very, very mixed school. And the, the black parents in the audience were cheering and clapping and whooping. And, and I, I walked off stage thinking, wow, I was really, I, I felt my knees were trembling. It was, I really felt the power of oratory and felt what it, what it was like to sort of perform. I think that was probably when, when I thought to myself, I, could, I, I like this. So was that the baptismal moment when you said, I'm going to be an actor? I, I wasn't ready for it. I mean, I, I, I say that the, the moment, I mean, that was probably the, the baptismal moment of me actually standing up and performing. Yeah. And I continued to perform in school. After, but know, not realising that that not is where it would lead. Yeah, not, really, not realising that other people were going, hang on a minute, he's pretty good at this stuff. So when the teacher finally said it, it seemed to make total sense. After graduation, you were offered fewer roles than your drama school friends. Was it a shock to find your options so limited, particularly on screen? I was constantly busy. But what I very quickly realised was that I was a black actor and I was playing black roles, whereas at Rada I was playing anything. I could play Romeo one week, King mm. Lear the next week, Moliere, Chekhov, Dostoevsky. How amazing. And I loved that. I loved the idea that I could be a... You know, I could be in a Pushkin play on a, on the on the, the, the you know roaming the hills of Moscow, and then the next thing, and I'm in, in a Moliere play, and I'm suddenly in love with a peasant girl. And but looking back, you can imagine what the impact on the audience must have been. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I felt that that would be accepted. That th that wasn't a question that the audience were particularly interested in, but they were, and critics were, and there was a real resistance to black actors, particularly playing classics, and that was what surprised me. Uh, the hostility that was put my way, you know, I had to sort of justify, why are you playing Romeo? Do you think black people should play Romeo? And what does it mean having a black actor playing Romeo? Did Shakespeare write it for a black actor? I just wasn't prepared for any of that. Mm. And I think that certainly contributed to me, certainly losing my footing, losing my, losing my confidence as an actor. Uh, and some of the reviews were very, very personal and cutting. And it really started to sort of fold in on myself a little bit. But you did manage to stay on track because America came calling. Had a huge career break in the form of Homeland mm. dawned. But this led to a decade working away from home. Mm. Did you feel that you had no other choice but to move? Well, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I hadn't worked for a year before I got Homeland. I'd done, I'd, and I have done pretty well as an actor in this country. I did, you know, I was, you know, very popular at one point, at one point, and 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 very busy, but when I sort of hit thirties, hmm. and I think a lot of actors find this, 
when you hit your thirties, you sort of you sort of hit a bit of a ceiling. And when I sort of grew into myself, became more mature as, as an actor, I found the part started to slow down a lot. Hmm. And particularly for me as a, as, a, as a black actor, um, there seemed to be fewer and fewer opportunities for hmm. me. And it, it it got to a point where. You know, I, as I said, I, I hadn't worked. H having been extremely busy, suddenly it was, I was finding that I was sort of surplus to requirements. And I think a lot of actors hit that point. There just aren't those authoritative, central roles. We don't seem to do them in, in this country, leading roles. But it's an extraordinary illustration of how innocent people were about the place of difference. Mm. I mean, extraordinary that people weren't already writing big parts for black actors. Yeah, but you know we're kind of still there. You know, you know. I mean, I've kind of, I've been back. I've been, you know, it's, it's controversial, but I mean, I've been I've been back about two years, and still the majority of the scripts that I get that are three dimensional and and fully sort of rounded are American. But, you know, I'm still not seeing those scripts on this side of the channel, um, and that's that's been a disappointment. I mean, there's great scripts for the younger generation; they're really doing well. But that is why I think a lot of black actors find that they have to go abroad. John Boyega, Daniel Kaluuya, Idris Elba. You know, we've all got to that point where, you know, we've done just about everything there is to do here. And then you think, OK, well, there's nothing coming. So the next step, logically, is to go to America where there's far wider characters to play, far wider scope of much more imagination and, and just, just more scripts and more work for black actors there. Did you have to bend your accent? <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny because, and and this has been, I, I guess, part of the the changing relationship of black black actors and black Amer black British actors and black American actors, because somehow we're sort of American producers like us over there, mm. like black British actors. We have a different approach, uh, I think, and uh, there's there's a sense amongst the black community in America that 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 isn't they don't like that, and that um, there's it's been a slight pushback against. The success of black British actors, slight pushback, which a lot of us found quite surprising, seeing as though we grew up watching so much American culture. It's been easy for us to to do the accent and to play American characters, but um, they see it very differently, and uh, they see it as I've even been I've even been accused of stealing their culture, Crumbs. which which I was really surprised really surprised at, but it it, it hasn't been as straightforward a. Uh, a segue as I, as I thought it might be. Let's take stock. I mean, have conversations around diversity improved in your working life? Oh, without a doubt. And I, I think the generation, what's, what's been wonderful is, I mean, I've been, as you say, I've been away for 10 years and I've come back and, and there's an explosion of, there's wonderful young black actors out there now. Idris, Damson Idris, John Boyega, as I say, Kaluuya. There's, there's an, a number of fantastically trained uh, black actors and writers and directors and creators who just weren't there hmm. when I was coming up. And um, it's a, that's hugely exciting. And I went to see a wonderful play in the West End a couple of weeks ago uh, called for, for Black Boys. And, you know, in my day, to have a play in the West End about seven black boys who were all talking about mental health and their experience of being young and black in Britain... You just wouldn't, people would have laughed you out of town. So that's just not going to work in the West End. And yet it was sold out every night mm. with a young, diverse audience. And people were saying it's so refreshing to see this type of work in the West End. And 
this is something we always knew was going to could could work, but in my day we were just told it's it's an impossibility. So I do think that uh, people are more accepting, audiences are more accepting of diverse storylines. I think we're ready. I think the, the, the explosion in streaming, in streaming, Netflix and and Apple shows, and you you watch their output, and a lot of their shows are very diverse, whether it's Asians or Blacks, or uh, you know. So there's there's there seems to be a far more uh, there's, there's a lot more excitement about shows that have diversity in them. Uh, and, and whereas, as I say, back in the day, we were told there's no audience for that. I think that's changed now. Beyond diversity, mental health is another important issue for mm. you. Because not long after leaving drama school, you had a psychotic breakdown. Mm. What what do you remember of the night you were detained by police? Oh, everything. I mean, that's in my documentary, uh, Psychosis and Me. I've been, I've been on an extraordinary journey the last four years since making that documentary mm. because I had buried so much of that trauma that making the documentary suddenly presented it back to me, stuff that I really hadn't dealt with for, for at least 20, 30 years. And although it was, it, it was very difficult for me, I was amazed at how much of that experience I did remember and recalled. And it's all, as you say, it's all in, in the documentary. I, I remember it very, very vividly. What I didn't recall was why I think it happened. And I think that was what the documentary really sort of showed me, which was, you know, as I said, I said earlier in the, in the, on the podcast, you know, I spent four years at RADA in this blissful ignorance of my race, in a sense. Mm. I could play anything, be anybody, and I loved that. And then when I came out of drama school, suddenly I was a black actor playing black roles, and you, you can do this and you can't do that. And I didn't quite understand that how, um, how much my race would affect my career. And as I say, the hostility that I was met with in terms of interviews and reviews really sort of started to undermine me mentally. Uh, I got very confused about who I was and what I was, and and that led to self-medication, whether that be drink, smoking, uh, uh, and lack of sleep. And before I knew it, I I was uh, I developed psychosis, uh, which is very common, hmm. a very very common form of mental illness. But I didn't know anything about it, and started hallucinating and not sleeping. And uh, funnily enough, heard the voice of Martin Luther King in my head the night I I had my major psychotic episode strangely enough it was the voice of Martin Luther King who sort of came to me and told me this extraordinary story about how when he died reality became his dream and I'm speaking to you as I said I I had a dream and now your reality is my dream and and I'm Fabulous. speaking to you from beyond the grave it was extraordinary massive thing and uh I you know I had to go walkies in London and I went for a walk in London and ended up being sectioned and seven policemen I ended up, I, I, apparently I was, my friends took me to Whittington Psychiatric Hospital because they were really worried. And they were so scared of this, you know, big black man running around their A&E department because I was, I, I was very distressed at the time. Uh, and they called the police and the police arrived and seven of them rushed me. And I was given an emergency tranquilization with seven policemen sitting on top of me. Oof. And what's really scary about that is, of course, People have died like that, yeah, and 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 which is why I think this week the police just said they're no, they're no, no longer going to uh, mental health calls, uh, and I know that several black people have been 
have died, lost their lives like that, being re restrained by police. So Dalian Atkinson, the footballer, lost his life that way, um, experiencing a mental health crisis and, and being held down by police. So it, I was very lucky to survive that. And was it this that persuaded you you needed to go public, you needed to speak out? No, it was very silly. I, mean, I, I was... My friend Sabina, who's in the other room, she 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 knows I have an interest in uh, mental health, and she just said, "Look, you know, it's World Mental Health Day. You should you should send a tweet out." And I thought, okay. And I was flying off to America, and I I was I remember sitting in in the the lounge at Heathrow, and I just tapped out as somebody who's had a breakdown. Just want to say, look after yourself today. Get some help if you can, and you know I haven't done too badly. It shows that there's that you know you can recover. Take care, all the best. Turned my phone off, went through security, flew to America, got off the plane, looked at my phone, there's 40,000 retweets. My agent was on the phone saying that the BBC had been on the phone, ITV <laughs> had been on the phone, Channel 4, you know, so it, it just exploded from that. And I suddenly thought, oh shit. You know, even though I've spoken about it personally, I've never gone public with it. And that led to me writing an article in The Guardian. And a friend of mine who was with me at the time of having that breakdown read the article and said, that's not how I remember it. And I thought to myself, have I misremembered this? And that then led to me pitching the idea of a documentary where I sort of reinvestigate my own breakdown. But it, it turned out to be a lot more difficult than I... Massively uh, uh, difficult. Really difficult, because I found all that trauma, mm. which I'd buried. And it was a scary, scary documentary to make. You've even gone so far as to compare the experience of talking publicly about your breakdown to running through a street, a village street naked. Well, it was. It's, you know, and, but, but that's the good side. Once you've run naked through the village, there's nothing, there's, you've got nothing to hide. But I sort of hadn't realised that I'd run naked through the village and everybody wanted to talk to me about it. So, and I found that really overwhelming because everybody else had a story of their mom had had a breakdown or their dad had had a breakdown or their boyfriend had had a breakdown. And... Yeah, just wanted to come and say thank you for speaking about it because I didn't know what it was and now I know it's psychosis and thank you so much. And I was totally overwhelmed by that, totally overwhelmed by, by suddenly being visible to people. But what is so incredible is that instead of being the guy who went bonkers, yeah. you're just known as a bloody brilliant actor. Well, yeah, and also, I, but I think also the fact that I'm a black man, you know, I, I, because there's been several black people who have come up to me and said thank you so much because... We don't talk about that in our community. But no one talks about that. In fact, I think the Royal College of Psychiatry actually called me up and said, thank you so much for talking about psychosis because it's the, one of the most common mm. forms of mental illness. No one talks about it. And so to have a successful black actor talk about it, it just can totally change the paradigm. So I was very, very fortunate about it, to, to come out of it as not the crazy guy, but I think people were genuinely impressed with the authenticity of the documentary and the fact that I was just so open and honest about it. To the joy of many of us, you're back in the UK now, where I was lucky enough to see you in Best of Enemies. Mm. But you were initially reluctant to take on the part of William Buckley Jr. For anyone unfamiliar with the play, can you tell me about William and his debates with Gore Vidal? Well, William F. Buckley was a sort of... A lot of people invent him, say that he was the sort of the father of modern conservatism, mm. and very privileged, very wealthy, white, waspy, upper New York, um, upper New York guy, extremely privileged, and whose whose ideas clashed directly with the civil rights movement. I mean, he argued against civil rights initially. 
He didn't think black people were ready for the vote. He didn't think black people were ready to be freed. And I sort of, I thought, how can I play this person? It's just impossible. What but, changed your mind? But the, I read about him. I started, the more I started to read about him, hmm. strangely enough, the more I understood his perspective. And this is probably going to be quite controversial, but I understood why he voted against civil rights. And I was quite encouraged to see that six or seven years later, he changed his opinion because he saw how violent Southern racists were being to, to black people. Thought that's, you know, the reason, the reason why he voted against civil rights was he didn't think black people were ready for the vote. But in order for them to be ready to the vote, for the vote, they have to be educated. They have to have the same chances as white people. So he was then saying, he, he, so he then, having said he didn't want any government intervention, he then said, well, the government has to intervene to protect Southern blacks in going to school, in getting educated. So he was for the troops protecting students going into those Southern colleges. Found himself completely on the other side of the argument. And I felt somebody who's got the capacity to understand that and understand that he was wrong in that, he went up in my estimation. And to then sit there and, I mean, he debated everybody, he debated people on the left and on the right, famously debated Gore Vidal, who was a, 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 a you know, a, a, a liberal, to the nth degree, I, I, I began to really appreciate his intellect, his humour and his wisdom. And I think actually now the Republican Party of today could do with a Buckley to draw them back from the MAGA sort of extremes to sort of have a what he, was, what he would call decent conservatism. I don't think that exists anymore. But the idea that conservatives, uh, that they're not, on the extremes of politics, there's a there's a healthy middle that um, I think he, he he spoke very articulately for. It's really interesting because it means that your trade actually enabled you to understand Buckley and all that surrounded him. I think I think you have to, and it, it's you know if you're playing, it's like when I played the, the baddie in um, in um, Blood Diamond, who was an RUF. Are you revolutionary United Front? That uh, they were butchers, absolute butchers, and you know had child soldiers working for them left, right, and centre, and uh, really uh, awful, violent, maniacal violence that they perpetrated on uh, the, the people of Sierra Leone. And I was playing one of these guys, and uh, funny enough, in the room next to me, I remember when we were filming was a journalist, a Sierra Leonean journalist who was, in, who was the film's uh, advisor. And I befriended him and he said, look, I've got all this... He said, look, I'll, I was kidnapped by the RUF, he said, you know, back in the day. And they were all so drunk and so sort of enamoured with my camera that they just said, film everything. So he had all this awful footage of the violence that they uh, perpetrated and all the stuff that they would say and to, to legitimise their violence. And I watched it. I watched hours of it. And suddenly I found myself kind of, you put your mind, in, as, as an actor, you have to, you can't judge your character. If you're playing the baddie, you don't think he's bad. You, you have to find the reason why he's doing that. So That's yes, interesting. In, in, That's fascinating. You have to, because otherwise you don't do him justice. Everyone's motiv motivated by something. And for me, his motivation was he wanted to get out of the awful situation that he was in. So I sort of, like with Buckley in a different mm. way, you do have to, as I say, if you don't judge your character and you can uh, you can drop your preconceptions of 
what you think someone on the left or right is or bad or good is, you, you start to peculiarly start to find ways of, of justifying their actions, which is bizarre. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you returned to the UK with the perspective of someone who'd lived in the States, did it feel like a noticeably different place? Very. How? Well, look, I, I remember flying off to America the day after Brexit. <laughs> I remember going to bed the night of Brexit thinking, oh, it's all it's in the bag, and then waking up in the morning shocked that we'd voted out. And I, I got on the plane, I flew back to the States, and I said to everybody, Clinton's going to lose this election. And they were all like, no, nah, they were all totally sure it was in the bag. And I said, guys, I've just come from England, they've just voted Brexit, populism is, I'm telling you, he's going to win. And as the night progressed, the election night progressed, they you could see their faces dropping the more he won. And I must admit, that sort of wave of anti-immigrant, anti-EU uh, sentiment that sort of washed over the country then, I didn't like it. I didn't recognise it. I was very sad about it. And then sort of, I remember coming back, once I flew back to England and, you know, there were things missing from the supermarket shelves. And I said to my wife, where's all the pasta? Hmm. And she was like, you know, we, the, the, apparently supply chain. And I was, I just thought, what is going what on earth is happening to the, what's happened to this country and I, I was sad that we'd sort of chosen to 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 cut ourselves off like that I, I you know I could just sense that it was an angry country it was a it, it, that sort of that sort of loving accepting that that's this I remember filming we were doing homeland at the time and myself and Damien Lewis sat down and we watched the 2012 Olympic Games the <laughs> opening ceremony and it was so magical and wonderful and multicultural and mm. amazing. And me and Damon were like sitting there going, wow, this is such a progressive place. And I remember tweeting about that. And somebody responded to me on Twitter saying, that's exactly why we voted for Brexit. We didn't want that. We don't want that. And it's always, you can always tell, it's always those people with Union Jacks in there. <laughs> Lots of Union Jacks and crosses of St. George in their, in their, in their, uh, on their avatars. And I thought that's really sad that we sort of let this monster out. And I think it's beginning to change now. I think people are beginning to wake up and regret it. I hope so. I, I really hope so, because we are a forward-looking, progressive people, I think, on the whole. 
And there's this new young generation coming through, which you see out there, you know, and they can't go and work in France and can't go and work in Portugal, can't go and work in Spain, which we could back in the mm. day. Mm. Bands can't tour Europe. Schools can't just, you know, go to Europe. It's changed everything. And I think people are beginning to see the downside of that. Your own parents came to Birmingham with from uh, Barbados. Can you tell me the history of your family name? Yes, well, it's a big thing, isn't it? It's um, This is something that I... And this is a, a, it's been a journey for me because originally I worked in... At the, I was working at the West Yorkshire Playhouse at the time and I saw Harewood House. Hmm. And I just thought, oh, that's a coincidence. My name's Harewood. Not understanding the history of the place. And then many years later, I did a, um, a documentary and that followed that up with another documentary from David Olashuga where he took me back to Barbados and introduced me to the land on which my family lived. And I saw a, a, a genealogist who did my family tree uh, right back to 1810, which was kind of extraordinary. And when you see the first Harewood was in my family was Richard Harewood, and he was born a slave on the Harewood plantation. And in Harewood, in 1805, when slavery was abolished, uh, to stop the tra illicit trade in slaves, all slaves on plantations were given the surname of the plantation owner, which is why in Barbados you get a lot of Browns and a lot of Thompsons. And, and so I was, we were given the name Harewood because Harewood, the second Earl of Harewood was the guy who owned all the slaves. And then at the end of the documentary, I fly back to Leeds and I go and see the current Lord Harewood. Uh, David Lascelles. Gosh. And I'd met him once before. And it was, it was funny, it was, it was a week after George Floyd had been uh, murdered. And it was a really weird meeting. I was angry and it was all this Black Lives Matter. So I was really sort of angsty and angry. And, and David himself is a, a Buddhist and uh, has this wonderful serenity about him. And it would have been, e it would have been easier if it had been um, Lord Bastard of, you know, Bastard Hall. But he's actually a very amenable guy. And we ended up having this really deep conversation about the house and the name. And in the end, I sort of said to him, you know, do you feel guilty about this, all this? Do you feel Brilliant. guilty about it? What a question. And he said, but he, his answer was really interesting to me, John. His, his answer, he said to me, I don't feel guilty because I'm not responsible, but I can be accountable. And he went on to explain why he does all these bursaries for local school kids. He's, he's, um, he's forged links with Barbados. Uh, given stuff back to Barbados, given given um, money, given uh, um, uh, information he's found in the in the house back to Barbados, forged the link with the with the, the historical society of Barbados, um, who have been very open and welcoming to to, to him to to, his, to how to how open he's been about that. Uh, and at the end of this documentary, I sort of walk around the house and I say, you know, there's one thing that is missing. There's there's all these wonderful pictures of horses and posh white people there's no pictures of any black people in the house so he has taken me up on that and my portrait will be in the house I did chat <laughs> later in this year which but I but the, the reason why we're doing it I think and I think this is important is you know is to open conversation about it mm. because so many people don't want to talk about that period of history so many people think that somehow by talking about that period of history we're somehow doing Britain down, or we're, you know, we're trying to besmirch the glory of, of England, when, when really the tangible effects of slavery, my name for one, 
are still with us today. And I think it's important that we do discuss it and we do talk about it because it, it, it means a lot to people. It means a lot to me anyway. You signed an open letter to the Prime Minister I mean, urging him to implement all the recommendations from the Windrush Review. Mm. What does the government need to do to show that it really is making progress here? A lot more, really. I think this government, has actually, this current regime, has actually abandoned all efforts to follow up on any of the Windrush recommendations. I think they've all been consigned to history and put in the bin, which is extraordinary, really. I don't think they've learned any lessons from that period at all. So I think at some point, somebody higher up has got to have some kind of royal commission or and and say, look, we have this is a, you know, this is a period of history. I mean, the Guardian newspaper is doing that now, mm. un uncovering its links to. But slavery. this is a moment when opposition parties ought to be calling for this and pledging. Yeah, I think to every, do it themselves. Have you tried the Labour Party? I think everybody needs to do it. I, I I haven't particularly tried that, but I think, as a nation, we have to go through this together, mm. because simply simply saying it doesn't matter, or simply saying. It's just in the past. We don't. It's it's besmirching the glory of England. I, I think that's it's too it's too um, simplistic. That the legacy of slavery, the legacy of injustice, is still with us today, and I think we have to, as a nation, understand all aspects of that. You've tackled some pretty big topics in your documentaries. Can you tell me about the next one, Blackface, which you've described as eye-opening? Yeah, it is. I, I, I mean, uh, what we do, uh, myself and David, David Olashuga, is really try and understand the roots of blackface, why it was invented, and that it was, it was actually invented by Thomas D. Rice as a way of persuading uh, whites that black people were happy simpletons. And particularly uh, uh, as they were being freed in America... And, and gaining independence. It was a way of undermining black people. So there was the dandy that was, the, 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 the little stereotypes, the sort of ragamuffin, sort of the know-nothing, happy-go-lucky, lazy black person. Those were tropes that, that were sort of spread by blackface. All these sort of stereotypical, the wide mouth, the pink lips, the wide eyes, the simpleton gestures were all specifically intended to undermine the integrity of black people. But it took off like wildfire. So when he came to London in late 1700s, uh, uh, early 1800s, with, with his act, it became extraordinarily popular. And, and the, the great Frederick Douglass, civil rights campaigner, saw this and was in London saying, That's da this is poison, this is extremely dangerous. So there was Frederick Douglass giving talks to, you know, in, in, in rooms all over London talking about slavery and how evil it was. And yet over the road, there were in the West End, there were George and the Three Niggers and, you know, Johnny and the Coons, uh, you know, these minstrel shows, which became wildly popular in London, to the point where the BBC then put them on and, in, on the Black and White Minstrel Show. And, you, you know, the Black and White Minstrel Show was still on in 1982. <laughs> So it's quite extraordinary how successful blackface minstrelsy was. Like, so successful that it almost persuaded white people, oh, black people are harmless. So we've had to sort of grow up, I had to sort of grow up, almost 
dispelling that myth that white people thought black people were like that. I think it's been what the what the documentary shows is just how extraordinarily successful blackface minstrelsy was in undermining black people, in persuading white people that they were simple, simple, childish, happy ne'er do wells. And I, I think it's gonna I think it's it's gonna rock a few people's worlds. What kinds of projects are you looking for next? I mean, you seem to be inexhaustible and seem to have about five things on at once. Six. Six. <laughs> so sorry, I understated. <laughs> Do you still have any unrealised ambitions? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm just starting my own production company, so I want to produce my own documentaries, my own dramas. I think there are stories, stories that need to be told and stories that can be told now. Stories that, you know, when, again, when I was at drama school, you know, wouldn't wouldn't have been told. There was there there was no appetite for them. But I do think now, particularly, there is much more of an appetite for diverse stories, not just in Britain but on a global scale. Can you give me an example of something you'd like to see? Well, I mean, we've never we've never had a British Roots, have we? We've not. You know, and Roots was so seminal, so powerful as an mm. American. And in Get On Up, John Amos was telling us that you know how wildly successful that program was, and nobody, the, the, the NBC, I think it was didn't know what they had. They filmed it and they were like, no one's going to watch this. Let's just put it out in con on consecutive nights. Just get rid of it. And by the end of the week, I think the finale was watched by over 100 million people. John Amos told me that um, they knew it was big when the studios got a phone call from the heads of the Vegas studio saying, no one's at the roulette tables. Everyone's in their rooms watching Roots. Let me just pause you there for a moment because there are young people out there <laughs> who have no idea what Roots was. Well, Roots was the story, uh, Alex Haley wrote this story of uh, his family's story of being captured in Africa and how through the American Civil War, through, 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 their, through their emancipation, right through emancipation in, in American history, how they fought against oppression, how this Kunta Kinte constantly fought and ran away. It was the story of how the strength, how black people resisted slavery. And it's, it is an extremely powerful drama. And a lot of people would say it, it contributed to softening of uh, softening of, of of a lot of hearts in America, white hearts in America, because people saw the brutality of slavery and saw exactly you know how black people have been treated. And I think that is a history that we just haven't seen in England. And a lot of people got wealthy. A lot of institutions got wealthy in England on the back of slavery, and somehow. They've not had a reckoning yet. There was a little bit after George Floyd. A lot of people came out and and suddenly said, you know, oh, you know, hold our hands up. You know, we've we've benefited from links to slavery, our links to slavery, but so much of it is unspoken. So much of it is unknown, and I think the British public could do with learning about that because uh, I don't think they know the the true details. Is there a project yes. you could build? Yes, to there do is, just and, that. and I'm and well, I'm in the process of doing that. So are you really? that's one of the projects I'm trying to produce and uh, be a part of as an actor. That's one of the projects for for sure. There's just so much there. There's, mm. there's, there's, so so uh, as I say, you know, Liverpool is a city that you know was built on 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 slavery. They put Bristol and we had that, the Colston statue mm -hmm. during the Black Lives Matter, and the the recriminations around the Colston statue statue mask the depth of feeling that people have. On one side of the community, Colston is a benefactor, but on the other side of the community, he was a slave owner. And where do you balance that? And, and, I, and I think that's, it's, it's, in, it's, in, it's in those 
in in those sort of muddy areas that drama thrives, I think. And, I, and rather than being nervous about it and upsetting people about it, I think we need to start telling stories about it. Well, I must say, David Harewood, this has been an amazing discussion. What really I can see is that your extraordinary career has, despite its extraordinariness, only just begun. <laughs> There's so much more to come. I hope so, John. I hope so. And I, I'm, I'm very excited about that. And you know, I, ha I have been away for nearly 10 years and I'm excited to be back here because there is a, a new generation of young black creatives who are really exciting. And I, I want an opportunity to work with them, alongside them, in telling all these, all these different types of stories. So it's an exciting time. It is. And it's been a very exciting time talking to you. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was David Harewood. What a brilliant conversationist and what a voice. If you want to enjoy more from David, there are links to his brilliant memoir, his documentaries and National Theatre Live in the episode description. I'm John Snow and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. I'll be sharing another episode next week, so please subscribe on your platform of choice and spread the word. Tell your friends. Goodbye for now. Thank you.